Welcome to the Arrangers Podcast. I'm Aaron Hedenstrom. And I'm Drew Zaremba. The Arrangers Podcast is a show dedicated to insightful discussion about the art, craft, and business of music arranging and composition. Be sure to subscribe through iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You can email us your questions at thearrangerspodcast at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook. And on Twitter at thearrangerspod. Thanks for tuning in. All right. Hello, everybody. How's it going, Aaron? Good. How are you doing, Drew? Doing good, doing good. I, I have my vaccine uh, scheduled uh, for next week, my first vaccine, so I'm very excited about that. I'm uh, excited at the prospect of things perhaps returning to normal, or at least some degree of normal. How about you, man? Yes, I completely agree. That's great to hear about uh, the vaccine. I was able to get on a list to get vaccinated last week and for my first out of two. Uh, so that that's exciting, and I, I feel the same way. Trying to get back to normal or slowly slide back into uh, more of a normal world, you know. it's It just feels good to have some kind of forward-moving hope that, you know, things are, are changing for the better. So, Yeah, and I know for us, uh, we, that means recording some podcasts uh, for you all. Uh, we're, we're, we're just excited to get back into it. We have some exciting uh, episodes that we'll be releasing. And uh, we thought we'd kick things off with a, a fun three-part series on what to... Uh, common mistakes that we all make when we're starting out writing or even uh, after we've been writing for, for a little while. You know, with midterms coming up and then final exams and projects. Or maybe you're just... Uh, maybe you're a freelance writer and you want to do some writing for yourself, but getting back into a creative mode, getting back to playing with a band together and you want to write some new material, we thought it'd be useful to have a uh, a series on uh, things, common mistakes and, and how to avoid them. Yeah, it's uh, it's kind of fun to go back and laugh at some of the mistakes that we've made and that we see in our teaching, you know, in our students. It doesn't have to be, you know, a scary thing to make mistakes as a writer. It can be uh, something that you learn from uh, really, it, it should be something you learn from. And most importantly, you know, we all need to make mistakes to get better at something, right? Um, it's just mm-hmm. the nature. It's I mean, it's human nature for no matter what you're doing. Uh, Michael Jordan said it really well when he said, uh, I fail over and over and over again, and that's why I succeed. So I think uh, <laughs> it's it's really fun to just, well, okay, fun maybe uh, maybe a stretch, but... Uh, it can be fun to <laughs> laugh at our own mistakes and, and stuff like that. But uh, more importantly, hopefully this discussion can lead to some good thoughts on uh, ways to approach writing so that you can best serve the music and best serve the people you're writing for. And then, of course, the audience that listens to it. So um, we're excited to just ju- well we're excited to jump in uh, with our first topic. All right, let's do it. We have three categories, basically, that we're grouping our our common errors within conception, voicings and orchestration, and copywork and notation. So that's Mm -hmm. uh, kind of how we think of it. So let's start with conception. And um, the first item on our list is uh, rhythm. 
So one of the things that gets overlooked in writing sometimes, because mm -hmm. we're so focused on writing chords, harmonies, melodies, you know, what are the notes that we write? And it becomes so such a big concern to, to, to try to write the right chords and write the right notes that we forget about making the rhythm sound good and make the rhythm feel good. So this would be the classic thing where, you know, you, you might write an arrangement and some of the rhythms just don't feel good. They just don't swing. And we've all played these kinds of compositions that feel like that, where you're like, man, this just does not feel good to play. And so what are some ways, Drew, that you counter this? Man, that's a great question. We have to listen to music that is uh, in the style that we want to write in. Like the example I was going to use real quick, and I've done it, my students have done it, and that is they'll just use the rhythms from the real book on a swing uh, chart. You know, like, yeah. and, and I think we've all done this. It's like, oh, or we're using the exact same rhythms off a recording that isn't maybe the genre that we're arranging the piece for. Right. And so, you know, if it's a swinging thing, make the rhythm swing. Or if it's a, if it's a clave piece... Uh, don't cross the clave. So right. I think for me, it's it's always about being uh, familiar with the musical idioms of the genre of music that you're writing in. You know, yes. jazz is going to have anticipations, syncopations, and uh, uh, the number of things off the beat, where classical music, not that they don't have anything off the beat, but more of the resolutions of the phrase come on one and three, whereas in jazz, it's often on the end of two or the end of four. Right. Again, these are not universal rules, but the bottom line is if it's a swinging chart, write something that swings. You know, That's right. I think people, a lot of myself included, but we try to write, we try to prove something by like writing something super hip or super, uh, something that we think is super hip against, you know, on a standard, a jazz standard or something. And we end up writing something that's just not uh, musically idiomatic. Uh, rhythmically idiomatic and we often overlook this because we as arrangers are often concerned with notes and voicings and orchestration but to me a good chart has good rhythms period absolutely and i i mean yeah what you said about understanding the musical style you're in is dead on i think that's the number one thing because when you're really familiar with the style you can hear when somebody is approaching it without a lot of familiarity right like yes. um yeah <laughs> And that's where I think knowing your limits is really important and so that you can you can approach it with the appropriate mentality because, you know, if someone was like, Aaron, write me a, I need something for a bluegrass thing. Well, I would have to pretty much educate myself on, you know, how yeah. that music works. I'm not, I'm not very familiar with it other than just hearing it in passing or listening to it here and there on the radio or something. Mm -hmm. I, I don't, I haven't right. studied it. I don't know the conventions. I don't know the rhythmic patterns that are, are common. And so yes. uh, let, let's not pretend we're just well-versed in every style of music. I mean, there's no possible way. And so you're absolutely right. I just had this discussion with my arranging class yesterday because we're working on a project, you know, and I, I, it's funny you mentioned the lead sheet thing because that's exactly what I told them. I was like the lead sheet, is designed to be vanilla so that you can do something your own with it, right? Mm. And so we kind of went through some examples like 
It's like that is so dull, right? You know, you kind of you come up with your own rhythms because if you just go with what's in the lead sheet, it's just going to be quarter notes, and that's not yeah. very interesting, right? So, as 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 our friend Jay Saunders would say, it, it'll swing like the anchor on the Queen Mary. <laughs> that's good yeah yeah and yeah, i yeah. i also wanted to point out uh i was just watching this barry harris video yesterday like feeling oh yeah he, he talks about feeling the ands you should if anyone mm. should check that out it's on youtube but it's you were saying about ands of three or uh ands of two and of four resolutions mm -hmm. and he was you know talking about the importance of making the music swing and feel good and how it was supposed to be danced to right how they he grew up listening to all this music in dance halls and and how that gets yes. forgotten so easily and so anyways check it out it's a good video so and another thing that i think that rich de rosa would always teach us is that you sing it out loud to see if it feels good yes that's so true yeah it, it, there, there, you want that vocal connection to the music i think i think i think it's really great that in in school you have to learn piano but I wish that everyone also had to sing yeah. and play drums. Yeah. I think those three things would would make you a more consummate jazz. And, and, and if we look at all of our favorite players and our favorite musicians, they all do that. Like they all play piano pretty darn well. They all play some drums. It might suck, but, you know, I mean, it take the late, great Chick Corea. He could really play drums. Like, well, yeah. Seriously. I mean, he was... He was really good and, at And yeah, you must, you know, knowing the lyrics to songs, uh, being yeah. able to sing and vocalize and hear in your head, because what it means is that you're really hearing it in your head. You're right. not just uh, expressing it through your horn. So those three things I think are, are, are critical to your conception as an arranger and, and not engaging those is, is, is a big, big thing. Agreed, agreed. I always uh, talk with students about the, it shouldn't come from your muscle memory that you've memorized on your instrument. It should come from in your mind, in your body, in your heart and soul, right? Where the instrument is just a vehicle. So if you picked up some other instrument, you could express the same rhythms or the same ideas with a little bit of practice. But yeah. that, the, but that yeah. the, the, the instrument is really just the way you express it, but the idea comes from inside your mind and in your body. So that's where I think, yeah, singing what you write can really connect you with the material in a, in a different way. So uh, another, another common mistake in the conception of the music that, that we find that I am extremely guilty of is overwriting. Mm. <laughs> I think, I think, I think that's generally the temptation of most writers, especially early on is to see the page that might just have the melody and uh, basic chord symbols there for in a jazz idiom or just melody in, in any idiom, really. And then to fill it up. Oh, we're going to put some counterpoint here and some voicings here. And uh, we're going to harmonize everything. Um, th there needs to be, uh, oh, the solo section. Oh, they, they need a bunch of backgrounds and, and all this stuff. And this, unfortunately, while we've, we've all been that eager writer before, but this means often that the music is heavily unbalanced that there's not enough elements working together 
to make the music uh, really speak and to let, you know, it, if, if we're just going to have meat and potatoes and gravy and fried eggs and, uh, and donuts and ice cream, actually doesn't sound too bad, but it'll just be, we'll, 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 feel, we'll, we'll all feel really bad after the meal. We'll just feel full and, and awful um, <laughs> yeah. as opposed to something more balanced. Yeah, what are what are strategies you use to help over help keep yourself from overriding it, and what have you seen in your experience, Aaron, about that? Yeah, well, that's a good analogy. You know, overeating. You know, I think it like thinking of analogies like that are very fun and also helpful. And I think it's just it's fun to to think of creative analogies for music, right? But uh, I, mm-hmm. I oftentimes think about like going to a buffet right like it's <laughs> it's exciting yes. to go to a buffet because you get all these options and you you don't have to say i only want this you know oh i got to pick one um and and i mm-hmm. think that's what we can think of as a writer sometimes oh there's a blank page look at all the possibilities i want to do all of them but like you said you know the problem with a buffet is that there's too many op- there's too many options and you and you can just do them all and then you feel sick right and so it's <laughs> it's not healthy right it's uh right it's fun Mm -hmm. but it's it's not necessarily healthy in the long run obviously Mm -hmm. the metaphor breaks down musically because it's not necessarily physically unhealthy for us to overwrite music but it's something where it's a matter of tastefulness right there are certain musical scenarios where writing a lot of stuff even like maybe what you might consider overwriting could be appropriate you know or you might write a piece where the whole concept is to have a lot of activity and a lot of craziness and a lot of noise. But also, you know, you, every piece can't be that. In fact, most pieces can't be that, in my opinion. I think to go back to the food analogy, you know, what you really want in a lot of cases is to just understand how to make something good and then to work within the confines of it. So if you're writing a right right you know a tasty feel good funk chart or something like that. Mhm. The DNA of it has to be good. The 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 melody has to be good. The baseline has to be good. The rhythm has to yes. be good. The chords have to be good. The form has to be good. Those are like your structural foundations of the piece. If you, you know, so you spend most of your time on that. And then when you orchestrate stuff, you don't have to be as heavy handed because the materials already is good. Right. I I think if your piece is structurally sound and it has a lot of inherent musical direction and motion. And if you were to make a lead sheet, would that be a pretty good piece of music on its own? Then. Right then you don't have to work as hard. You don't have to write as much to compensate, right? Yeah. So for me, just first of all, making sure that all that stuff is in place. I I remember taking a lesson with David Berger, Mm. who we interviewed, our first interview. He mentioned that one of his principles is if there's one section in the band harmonized, then the other sections shouldn't be if they're playing a a contrary idea. So in -hmm. other words, you know, you might have a sax soli and you also don't want to have like a competing idea in the brass or, or whatever strings or whatever that's densely harmonized because then they're competing and it's how he put it was it masks each harmony sound and there's too much going on. It's not as uh, clear. Right. And so mm-hmm. that's something Clarity. I often think about. And again, there may be a, a situation here and there where you could kind of 
twist that rule a little bit or yes or yes. break it in the right way but like by and large it's a pretty good principle right yeah absolutely it's it's uh you know all of these things we're saying are are general things you know they they apply much of the time there there may be exceptions the things that i that you you were talking about makes me think about is uh john clayton's uh, his two favorite words when talking about writing is sincerity and clarity and so clarity being what we're talking about here is is it clear what is going on or is or is our writing getting in the way of ourselves mm. and then we're going to be releasing an, an episode uh, an interview with vince mendoza very soon and one of his favorite words is groove buster Mm. Uh, we we as writers often will write something. Uh, we'll have a groove going. We'll have a. It'll be. It'll feel great, and then we'll write something like to break up the groove and and do something spicy and innovative and interesting, but it'll totally ruin the groove. Mm. It, it because it's just overwritten or overcomplicated. Wow. And Vince Mendoza, yeah, he he calls them groove busters and says, "Oh man, what are you busting the groove for? It was it was it was feeling good. That's like." taking away all the cake just to have a little extra frosting somewhere. Yeah. And so these are some of the things been passed on to us by some of our favorite and our teachers and favorite people just to help avoid overwriting, just being honest about yourself uh, with yourself about what the state of the music you're writing in and not, not necessarily falling in love with every note that you write, uh, having the courage to use the eraser. Yep. Sammy Nestico talked about his favorite tool, is the eraser mm. um, and he would erase a lot of notes after he wrote them because he realized they weren't necessary they were getting in the way of what he had written which is crazy to think about because he writes incredibly beautiful but simple music you know right it, not not overly it, his he's he's known for being uh, a simple but extremely effective swinging uh, arranger and composer and so to think that he used the eraser so much is crazy to me. I mean, I, I'd love to hear the music before the eraser, but clearly the eraser made, it purifies and uh, only contributes to his music. Right. I'm using simple in a very positive way, by the way. I love, we all love Sammy Nestico. It's, oh, absolutely. Uh, yeah, simple, tasty, yeah, yeah, yeah. beautiful. And one of the benefits of writing is that we, we can edit, right? And yes, yes. That's where I think being a writer and being a performer differ. And as a performer, you get on stage and you get one shot at something, mm -hmm. whether that's a classical piece or a acoustic song that you wrote on an acoustic guitar or mm -hmm. whether that's a jazz improvisation. I mean, whatever it is you do, you get on stage and you perform and that's your shot. Like you gotta, it's more about right the in the moment skill that you demonstrate as a writer we are more about taking our time to come up with something mm -hmm. and then refine it i think sometimes people get the sense of writing like it's a performance like mm -hmm. i gotta get it down and then if my ideas are criticized then i did something wrong and it's like no 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 <laughs> no you actually yeah. are fine you're good you know but the only thing you did wrong was you weren't open to the criticism, right? You weren't open mm -hmm. to the refinement because that's it. Like people who write books and novels are the same way. They don't just sit there mm -hmm. and write out the book in one go. Now they write it out. They have their whole whatever they do. And then eventually that's why people hire their editors, right? Because yes. it needs to be refined. It needs to be 
uh, I mean, there may be instances where where people can create boom right there in the spot and streams of consciousness just right. instantaneously vape, uh, vaporizing out of thin air, right. materializing I mean, out of thin air. Yeah, and I, I I'm not saying that that never happens, but it's not a bad idea to go back and be open to revisions. I think you know. Yes. Um, every now and then you yes. might get something that just comes out great or and maybe some people work that way all the time and I, I mean that's re- very very admirable but I think you have to be on an extremely high level and very experienced yes. as a musician mm-hmm. to be able to do it's not it's not like you just come out and write your first arrangement and you're just like dang like that was totally sick you know <laughs> yeah I, I remember hearing in an interview with Bill Holman that he was kind of that way he yeah. never spends more than a day or two on a chart, uh-huh. like uh, maybe three days max. Right. But then he's just like, that was that chart. I'm moving on. That's to me, that's almost more of a performance than mm-hmm. than, than uh, I mean, he's clearly writing and thinking about things. But, you know, he was also a great improviser. And I think that's where sometimes, uh, you know, the balance between being an improviser and being an arranger can really help because it can help generate those ideas. But then the arranger can be the editor you know, the purifier. So all that to say is, yeah, don't be afraid to edit your work. One one piece of advice is don't edit your work uh, at the same time you're writing it. <laughs> right. I, I like to I like to let the idea spill out, let it be crazy and overwritten because that's my tendency. And then I'll take away from it little by little, um, chip away at it and find and, and purify it and, and uh, polish it. But sometimes people, and myself included, get paralyzed trying to write the perfect melody on the first go. And that's right. or, or harmony or counterline or whatever. And I'd rather just get it on the page and then I can manipulate it as I need to. Yeah, yeah. It's really funny sometimes when I go back and edit, and I don't know if you experience this, but I'll, I'll sometimes feel this almost weird obligation to keep it the way I first wrote it. And I'm like, why? Yeah. I don't understand <laughs> yeah. where, like nobody's... Uh-huh. Th- like if it's somebody else's song and you're like, I want to change this, but it's you can't. That's right, right, right. That's right. one thing where you're like, well, I can't change somebody else's song, but this is my song. Like I could change anything about it I want, and yet I'm sitting here yes. going, wait, I feel like I can't change it for some reason. It's Maybe weird. It's because we are used to doing arranging other people's works that where we can't change it. <laughs> right. Maybe that's something to do. With, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. But it's easy to overwrite, but editing is important. I think that's our the summary of that. What's next, Darren? Well, one really common thing uh, that people... Well, okay. These all include ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> we'll say that up front. But uh, writing poorly written rhythm section parts, and maybe part of that is poorly conceiving of the rhythm section's role. You know, right. And I think there's a part of this that's sort of a maybe a uh, lack of understanding or education or experience with it. And part of it, that might just be not knowing how to implement it. So like Drew said, you know, those of us who go to uh, like a conservative or conservatory type music school, learn piano in class um, at the very least, but we don't really learn a lot of other rhythm section instruments um, unless we just kind of decide to do it ourselves. And right. part of, I think being a writer is trying to understand to the necessary degree what 
each instrument goes through or what their mm-hmm. role what their role is i guess in a given situation and not to say that you have to be a master of every instrument or that you have to be great no. at or even passable at, at some instrument but to sit behind a drum set a couple times and just try and just to see how hard it is and to see what the limitations are to sit you know mm-hmm. to sit with a guitar and to sort of realize the mechanics of it and go okay here's where it's limited and here's where where it's not to sit on a, a bass and try to play an upright bass and to see how much physicality it takes and how you might have written all these fast notes for an upright bass and and they might they might you know look man this is not easy to do right and or on a trombone you know even just even just playing out of the basic, you know, essential elements or standard of excellence book and, or just kind of mm-hmm. trying to play, you know, hot cross buns on one of these instruments. Like you realize, wow, like trumpet is a physical instrument. Wow. Trombone has a lot of limitations with speed, you know, and, and things like yeah. that. So to, to get back to the rhythm section, I think a lot of it is if you don't know what a rhythm section is supposed to do instrument by instrument, then you're you really have no shot at writing a good rhythm section part right and so the 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 tendencies then become to just write nothing but slashes for the rhythm section which in some styles is very effective but often lacks the the details of that that could be included in the rhythm section to enhance the music that much more are missing or just to overwrite for the rhythm section and and write every single thing out which is not what a rhythm section is really designed to do especially you know part of the reason that you we have rhythm section specialists is that they are good at improvising parts they are good at making up their own groove that they come up with you know, I've written a lot of bass lines that suck, <laughs> but then the bass player would be like, hey, just take this out, you know, take these couple notes out. In this position, it'll be really awkward, but and then it'll also usually groove more because there'll be fewer notes and it'll feel better. So right. anyways, all that to say is becoming familiar with the instruments, becoming familiar with their roles, listening to them frequently and realizing what they're they're good at doing and uh, in, in different genres of music. But to speak to the first little sub point here is that, you know, writing only slashes for the rhythm section, while sometimes effective and the best thing often to do in a solo section, when you want everyone to have the freedom to do what they need to do to make the music sound better, there's little things that can be added often to the head or other other parts of the composition that enhance the music through rhythm section writing, whether that's uh, comping patterns, bass lines, hits, specific kinds of orchestrating in the rhythm section, like using like an in a, a two feel versus a four feel, or even a in one playing in one brushes versus sticks versus mallets, uh, using a specific part of the piano uh, to comp in, doubling bass with piano, all sorts of little tricks of the trade that can really develop uh, a rhythm section chart into something uh, much more than just plain old slashes right especially when judiciously i think part of this too is is just doing a lot of listening even if you never you know touch one of these instruments to to be able to listen to examples to see what other arrangements do um and and i think you get ideas of how you can break free from the slash mark 
uh, purgatory, you know, um, <laughs> <laughs> because, okay. Nice. And, and just, I mean, just think of it this way. If you're a drummer and you get a chart and it's just like, you know, a hundred measures of, of just diagonal lines. I mean, that really, <laughs> that really means absolutely nothing. Right. I mean, yes. and then all the other players have specific chords or specific notes. But then, you know, the drummer is left to just sit there and go, all right, I guess I'll just play, you know, and, and they're not going to enhance. I mean, they're, they're going to have to work really hard to be able to understand what to do to enhance the arrangement beyond just playing some kind of a consistent pattern or groove. And so giving the drummer just some indication of what to do right organizing phrases so that they know when to mark a new section with maybe a crash symbol or uh, do a fill that leads into the next section um, you know just any any kind of hints that give a rhythm section player some information on the shape and feel of the song as well as how they can enhance it writing little mm -hmm. uh, rhythmic hits that line up with the the band the the horn section or something just those little things can really bring an arrangement together and they can be very simple you know it could just be yes you know here's a little hit on beat three or whatever um it doesn't have right. to be like you sit there and you craft this master work of a drum part it could just be you just enhance the song in little ways right yeah i think that's I, you spoke to one of the the biggest uh, poorly written rhythm section member parts, and that is the drums. <laughs> uh, yeah, totally... I'm sure. I'm sure drummers just have all sorts of complaints about charts because it's. I mean, I'm sure they see all sorts of stuff, and yeah. a lot of it. I mean, look, it's nobody's fault. We don't know what to write until somebody tells us what the convention is. You know, right? So exactly. I think I, I always tell my students, and I do this myself. My my rule of thumb is to just get feedback from the players. It's just, you know, mm. you bring an arrangement to something and you say, look, if there's anything that you think could be better in these charts, notation-wise or, or whatever, hey, just come let me know. That's so good because then the drummer or the piano player, or the guitar player, or the bass player feels comfortable to come to you and say, man, this fingering does not work on the guitar. You know, this <laughs> this is not how you write, you know, a figure in the drums. You know, you do this instead. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, totally. That that reminds me of uh, you're saying the same thing that Billy Strayhorn would say. Ask ask the musicians of the Duke Ellington uh, Orchestra. Yeah, yeah, um, right. Did you enjoy your part, even to the third trombone player? You know. <laughs> yeah, if they're happy, um, then that's great. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Now, are there times that you just got to write something to make the thing work, and they might not like it? Yeah, but generally, you want your musicians to be happy, so they come back to playing your music and think, "Oh yeah, yeah, that that uh, that Aaron Hedenstrom guy, he write he writes great music." Sure, there was that one part; it was hard, but on the overall, it was so such a great chart. It was so well written, right? Which actually leads us really nicely into our next uh, point here, and that is, of course, bad rhythm section parts are are one thing. But then, and it has its own series of complications and uh, and specificities. But bad horn or string or just non rhythm section parts in general, we're mostly taught. We our our audience is predominantly jazz folks. But you know, for the other uh, arrangers of all sorts of music, classical, funk, hip hop, whatever, um, 
this this everything still applies, um, but unidiomatic horn parts or string parts are an ext- unfortunately an extremely common thing in that we make early on in our writing careers. Yeah, for sure. And even I mean, as we go, and and what's interesting is sometimes conventions might be different amongst different crowds you know like someone who's used to playing in a symphony orchestra they have different notation conventions than other musicians Mm -hmm. and so they might see a part that's well written if you're thinking of it from a hey i'm writing a jazz big band but for from a orchestral standpoint it might seem like this doesn't look right you know right or or for example uh in orchestral writing you know you can write trombones in uh treble clef or you you know sometimes you can mess with the clefs of different things but in jazz writing you don't really do that and so uh again it's mm-hmm. it, it might vary from from player to player or situation to situation what the standard convention might be um but in in general, though, the if the what we're talking about is oftentimes just the raw material is the raw material of the writing good for right. the players, right? And mm-hmm. so, what are what are some of the common missteps? What are the, what are the holes you can step in? Man, I think I think number one is just a. Uh, I think what we often do as writers is overwrite for the brass. Mm. We'll we we will write without any concept of endurance or how taxing it is to play a brass instrument or how range you know just writing really high or really low notes that might not be accessible. But I think it it a lot of it comes down to how we write for the trumpet and the trombone a lot of the times. Uh, yeah, you, you'll some young writers will often just write pages and pages of notes with no rests for the trumpet, trombone, um, and that is <laughs> these are clearly written by people who don't play those instruments. <laughs> right, right, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I've recently I've recently started playing some trombone just so I can uh, empathize a bit more. Uh, I have one here at at my house, and uh, it's hard. Oh yeah. my goodness! Yeah. It's difficult, and I and I and I know trumpet's harder because it just requires that much more endurance. But yeah, like long passages of whole notes, pages and pages, uh, lines and lines of whole notes, or just they what they really need is is time with the horn off their face in order to get the blood back into their lips. And so uh, that's not to say that they can't play loud, of course not. But if you notice some of the great shout choruses. Uh, in uh, Basie writing, Stan Kenton's writing, Duke Ellington, you know, there's enough rests before and after for the trumpets in particular. Right. You look at the books in uh, the, 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 you know, the music books of any jazz orchestra, the trumpet book should always be the smallest. Mm. It should have the least number of pages. Doing If you're doing copy work, you know, in a small group, it's a little bit different um, because they, there'll be more on, on the trumpet player to play. But you, you still you can't just have them play constantly. It's very hard to do that and and keep that up and keep the endurance up. So I think that's that's probably the number number one thing. Would you add anything to that or something else, Aaron? Or in general, anytime you have a wind instrument, you're thinking about endurance and pacing and timing as well, because mm-hmm. um, 
like I've seen, I've been in situations where like a piano player brings in a chart or a guitar player brings in a chart. And even as a sax player, there's nowhere to breathe and it's just nonstop uh-huh. playing and it's just lines, 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 lines. And um, on a piano or a guitar, that's totally like a normal thing to do because you don't really have to breathe. But on a wind instrument, you really do have to take some time to breathe and find a, a place to take a breath otherwise you just don't have enough it's just not idiomatic i mean again uh, as a player you learn to deal with those situations like oh okay i know that this note is kind of a a ghosted note so i'll just like breathe during that note or like oh we're all in unison so if i take a quick breath on beat four then everyone else will carry the line but those are situations that ideally you wouldn't even need to be put in because the writer would have already written it in a way that right it doesn't need to be and so and again anytime you're writing for any instrument you just the main thing is considering what it's going to be like for them to play on some level um mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. absolutely so another another thing that goes with this is uh just the the volume level of certain ranges like the higher you get on a brass instrument the more volume is required to get those notes to come out and sound full after a certain uh, threshold and so you know you're not going to write a double c on a trumpet and and tell them to play it and by the way i've done this tell them to play it (laughs) pianissimo i mean i've literally written that in a part and the (laughs) and the player could actually sort of do it and so it kind of gave me this wrong idea like oh yeah that's cool i could do you know but actually other people so someone I think maybe a teacher or another student was like, "Hey man, you really shouldn't do that." You know, <laughs> when you say a double C, you mean a C on a, right just above the treble clef, right? Uh, I think actually, I think in my case, I don't think it was a double C. I think it was like an F or something like that. Like oh, and oh, damn, wow, yeah, that's yeah. crazy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so anyways, wow. but but the idea being, it's not really idiomatic, and yeah. it's not a position that you want to put players in because it's just like it's kind of one of those things like, okay yeah i'll do it but like oh, pff, i'll try but mm-hmm. you know it would be like getting a, a classical player and being like hey man could you like uh improvise for a few measures you know it's like <laughs> well i guess i could try but like that's not my thing you know right it's it's putting someone in a position that's not comfortable and it might kind of be just inconsiderate i guess mm-hmm mm-hmm totally I was going to I was going to add uh you know we're talking about horn parts a lot here but also when when writing string parts you know a lot of arrangers forget to write slurs. Uh-huh. You have to write you can't not write slurs for the strings unless you want everything to be detached, you know, or detaché. Like yeah, it, you don't have to put the bowings in there, but they but bowings in so far as they are slurs need right. to have to be there. We as Jazz musicians often don't put articulations because they're interpreted by the players. But in class, or if you're writing for classical winds and there's no articulations, everything is going to be tongued. So because that's the idiom, because that's that particular idiom. Right. So you you got to write slurs on string parts, uh, uh, unless you want literally everything to be yeah detached. So right. It's it's for trumpets and trombones and saxophones, but all the instruments have their have their own idioms so really what this comes down to is just being aware of the different instruments uh how to write for them 
and uh, being empathetic toward to the players with the with our with the particular priorities being on in our in our jazz idiom uh, brass writing and overwriting uh, without rests breaths or or uh, long periods of uh, phrases without break. Right, and and you know I wanted to also point out uh, just a general point as we talk about this. We're not saying never make mistakes like that. The, hey, avoid these mistakes. But we're just I think it's really important to make these mistakes or even to sort of take a chance on a mistake in a non important mm. situation. Like like if you have an, uh, an uh, opportunity to workshop an idea and mm-hmm. see if it works, seeing if you're kind of pushing the boundaries of someone's technique, the best way you learn is by putting the wrong thing in front of someone and having them kind of complain or, or tell you you know it it just this is just bad you know um because that's happened yeah. to that's happened to us so many times i mean oh goodness um i remember because i got a, a classical composition degree before uh getting a jazz arranging degree and we just we wrote for all sorts of different you know chamber types of of scenarios where you might be writing for a string player or a oboe player and it was just fun to like try stuff but one of the things that I re- remember um, experiencing was writing string parts with, you know, some kind of a line and being like, man, everything sounds so harsh, like cha-cha-cha-cha-cha, you know, and it would be like, <laughs> why are they playing it that way, right? Like, but it was because I didn't write any slurs and every, and yeah. so I didn't realize that just means they're going to go, and everything sounds like an accent. So that was, uh, that was exactly the learning experience that taught me that. But then there was a string quartet that came in as a, they were like a really amazing, you know, traveling string quartet of uh, professional players. And they were doing a workshop with the composition students reading, you know, a comp- reading compositions and sight reading them and giving feedback. So I wrote this piece that was ridiculously just, it was kind of, I think it was actually kind of terrible, but um, <laughs> <laughs> because because I was trying to write all this really fast stuff and I was write, writing all these like super, super fast scales and actually they could play it. I mean, it was, they were, wow. I mean, they nailed it. I mean, but the thing was I wrote slurs across the entire scale because I wanted it legato because as a horn player, as a sax player, that just means play them legato. But as a string right, player, right, it tells right. you the direction change. When do you change directions? And I didn't realize that. Mm-hmm. And so I just thought, yeah. oh, well, they'll figure that out. Right. And uh, <laughs> I, and so we get in there and the guys and, and the guys like, I can't play all these notes in one Boeing, you know, <laughs> And so right, I was like, right, I right. Was like confused, like, wait, what? Uh, I, oh, okay, um, then <laughs> don't. But then I realized <laughs> at one point, okay, yeah, I, I understand now. But, yeah, so, again, you learn the best from just making these mistakes, and ideally in a scenario mm-hmm. where it's l- less of a high stakes. I also, a couple of years ago, had a, a thing where I was writing some string parts for a, a, a gig, and uh, mm-hmm. the players are are peers of mine. They're not, they they they're people I'm comfortable with socially and and as friends or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so I was trying to do these reductions of some arrange like James Brown arrangements and so and mm-hmm. I wanted and it's like on the recording, it was like full strings, you know, right? Like a bunch of str- and I was like, man, it's a string quartet. I want. I was kind of pushing the buttons a little bit. I was like, I'm gonna. 
I'm going to write the cello super, super high to see if I can double some of those violin parts, you know? Right. And right. Uh, I was, I, I had no idea if it would actually fly, but I, I knew that it was something I could like get away with in a rehearsal and then change it if it right. didn't work. So I was like, I'm just going to try this. And then sure enough, Hey, uh, this, uh, this is actually incredibly hard to play and doesn't really work. <laughs> Oh, okay. Sorry. I'll just uh, fix it. You know, so uh, yeah. it, it, again, it's like sometimes you want to try to push some boundaries and, but with the idea that if it doesn't work, then I know where the line is, you know? Right. Yeah. That, I mean, honestly, and, and that brings us to our last point, which is really just a summary of everything that we've uh, talked about and discussed uh, for the last, you know, 45 minutes here. And that is learn the conventions and then don't go about avoiding conventions without purpose or intention. Right. You know, like uh, a lot of the times we'll try to prove a lot of things as we write and we'll, oh yeah, I'm hip. I'm great. I'm a, I'm a good, I'm a good arranger. I can really do all these great things. But you're not actually really proving anything. You're proving that you don't know much about a particular mm. idiom or, or convention. Um, and we all do this. We, oh, we, yeah. We all do this. Um, but uh, it's, it's important to learn the conventions and, and, uh, and abide by them in the beginning. Unless you're a genius, you know, like <laughs> Bill Evans or, or a Jimi Hendrix or, um, you know, just someone who just has an eight an, an an eight understanding of of how conventions work and how to defy them, or Jacob Collier, you know, just like, right. oh yeah, I can do whatever I want because I've heard all these things. But even he had he obeyed more conventions earlier on when he was just doing his acapella writing. Right, right, yeah. He certainly comes from from understanding the traditional approach. Right, and so and that is to say. Yeah, make sure you have purpose and intention behind you and your decisions to do something that's unusual. Um, don't just do it because, oh, yeah, I'm going to try this and it'll be so great. You know, um, like you, like Aaron said, maybe maybe do try that, but not in, not in a high stakes situation when you're experimenting and workshopping and trying to figure something out. That's That's a good place for that. That's a good place to to figure out what doesn't work or what does or or if something happens to work. Right. I think that one of the things that we deal with as composers, if you're drawn to writing, you may be somebody that like me feels like this sense of like, you know, ooh, I'm going to write this masterpiece, you know, I'm going to write this epic thing that everybody's going to love and it's going to redefine music as we know it and <laughs> Uh, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I assume that other people have these types of thoughts because I remember just so many times where I thought I, I made these, I was like, I'm going to write something crazy just because, you know, I want to be so different and I want to be so unique and original. And I, I mean, again, those instincts can be good and you can actually come up with some really sweet and cool. And, and so I'm, I, I certainly don't want to say don't follow those instincts, but be willing, I think, to acknowledge when something just fundamentally is like it's one thing to innovate and, and listen to it and go, yeah, that works. And it's another thing to listen to, to something and go, eh, 
doesn't really work right and like you can mm. so like innovation failure is a huge part of it right anybody who's mm-hmm. who's been in like a, a, a genius inventor or something um, before they came up with the final thing they they tried several failed attempts you know almost mm-hmm. invariably and and I think that as writers we you know we should be humble enough to say not everything I, I write is gonna work you know um, right but especially mm-hmm. again I mean maybe once you've reached a certain point and you have a confidence based on experience that you know what you write, you know exactly what how it's going to sound because you can imagine it because you're, you're that experienced. But I think uh, those may be the exceptions to the rule, right? It's easy mm-hmm. to kind of think, uh, yeah, well, uh, you know, Mozart was able to scribble out the notes and, and it was just perfect. And it's like, well, okay, well, how many people are Mozart? So, you know, <laughs> I mean, yeah. I, I, that's that's great that he could do it but like that's not the rule that's the exception right and mm-hmm. so i at least in my opinion that we should have a humility that innovate try new things but a c major chord is a c major chord and if you try to innovate a c major chord into something else you're just gonna you know like is it a c major chord or not i mean that's right. like at some at yeah. some level there's like a certain degree of you can't reinvent all of sound mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yep i think that's a perfect place to leave off here and um you know these these are the things that we see most commonly but you know email us and let us know what what things what other idioms you find it when when talking we're just talking about conception. We can, we're going to, this is a three part series. Like we mentioned in the beginning, uh, we're going to talk about voicings and orchestration next. And then we're going to spend a whole episode talking about notation and copy work because, oh boy, there's plenty to go through there. <laughs> um, but I think this was a fun, uh, episode. We hope you really, uh, enjoyed it. And, uh, thanks for listening. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Be sure to subscribe through iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Email us your questions at thearrangerspodcast at gmail.com. Be sure to find us on Facebook and on Twitter with the handle at thearrangerspod. Happy writing and hope to see you next time.